So congratulations, we made it to Joshua 6. Just taking 10 weeks, you know. Uh, why don't we pray? That'd be a good place to start as any. Good to see your smiling faces. Uh, our boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. Amen. Amen. What a good life we have that we can cram in here and study the Word of God. Amen. You're going to get an absolute feast tonight. You'll be on overload. And uh, if you were bored and had nothing to study this week, that's about to change. Amen. So who wants to pray? I'll pray. Abimbola, we, we usually give it to whoever asks first. I don't, I don't know what's wrong with the other 11. Out here. You know? So come on, Peter, pray. Holy one of Israel, we thank you. Father, we thank you for the very breath in our lungs. Father, would you unblock our ears tonight as we hear your words? Father, would they make their work their way into our hearts and would they show up in our very actions? Mighty God, we ask that you will anoint your son. Father, would you put your words on his lips? May every word that proceeds out of his mouth come from your very throne room. Father, we thank you. We love you. We say, blessed be your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, y'all know how this goes. It's our tradition that Jennifer gets to read the chapter. She's very happy that we are not in Chronicles tonight or in the beginning of Numbers. Uh, read for us, baby. We're going to start in... Um, Chapter 1, verse 6, uh, at this place, we're, we're just no longer reviewing, okay, or else we can't make practice, yeah, can't make progress, rather. Uh, let's go. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, Advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guards marched ahead of the priest who blew the trumpets and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time, all this time, the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the people, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the people returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the Ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. 
except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared. Because she hid, the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into the treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted. The sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkey. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and as she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced the solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild the city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Amen. What an incredible chapter, huh? There are so many layers of this. Those of you familiar with the Pardes model that was first century Jewish interpretation, that there is what is in the plain sense or the Peshat here that is extraordinary in and of itself. You could get the idea that God armed his people with sonic weapons. Yeah, that one. Uh, there are many things that are hinted at here. I mean, you remember that the scarlet cord is also the Hebrew word for hope, tikkwa. Uh, there are things in the Darash here that when you compare it with other passages, just opens up a whole prophetic element in the word. I mean, the heptatic structures or seven series of sevens that are in this are extraordinary. And then there's a whole other level of this passage that the Hebrews would call a sod, uh, a revelation. For instance, Rahab ends up outside of the camp of Israel, but included in Israel, separate yet part of the camp. Of course, as time goes on, she ends up in the Davidic lineage. So was she separate and considered a Gentile, or did she become Jew through marriage? She was grafted in. This was a question that people were fighting with, and uh, an idea that they were fighting with in Acts 18. What is the nature of the Jewish and Gentile relationship once you're in Messiah? And interestingly enough, unlike Rahab, we stay nationalistically separate and we are united in Messiah. 
but you can see from <coughs> stories like this why it was a discussion to be had, right? Mm -hmm. So there is something in this chapter for everyone, for the theologian among us, for the person just looking at how on earth do I apply this to my life starting now. Mm. Y'all want to get into it? Yes. yes. Amen. So if we're going to start in Joshua 6.1, we have to be careful not to divorce it from the previous chapter. I can't cover the previous chapter, but what we can do is we can read two verses from it just to help you. Uh, who would like to read? So Justin Linton, you take Joshua 5.14 through 15. Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. <laughs> and Joshua did so. So we won't reteach what the angel of the Lord's presence is and why this is not a Christophany. I want to take a larger view tonight. When we are beginning Joshua 6, understand something. This is not Joshua's war. The coming war is not Israel's war. The fact is that it is God's war. It was being waged prior to man's existence. Man was a proxy in this war. And man's job was to carry out what God had commanded. In fact, the angelic warriors have shown up before the earthly warriors have shown up. We have the, the commander of the Lord's host there before there's a battle plan, before there's any action in the earthly armies at all. Somebody who wants to read? Justin, take Genesis 1.28. Remind ourselves of what was going on before man. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Fill the earth and subdue it. Some translations say replenish it. Before man was ever put here, there is darkness on the earth and waters on the earth. When man is taken from wherever he was created and placed in a garden, uh, in chapter 2, what, what we find is that there's already a tree of knowledge of good and evil here. Before man ever sinned, we have a serpent that has yielded to a power that is apparently already sinning. There is a pre-story to man. It's not worth getting into tonight. What's important is that man is the solution to the problem on the planet. Amen. God put us here for the purpose of fixing something. He put us here to be his proxy, his ambassadors, to act on his behalf, so he made us in his image. That is an extraordinary responsibility when it comes down to it. Yeah. You looked like God. You were made like God. And you were supposed to act like God. And instead, we corrupted ourselves. And we joined the rebellion. What we're finding in Joshua is that when a man is called of God and submits to the word of God, he wins every single battle that he faces. Because it's not his battle. None of this is for him. None of this is about him. He is God's proxy, his agent on earth. When he does not seek God, he cannot win a battle even if he should win the battle. You know, I personally think the Salvation Army could probably defeat Canada. 
But if it is not God's will, then they will not win. <coughs> Seeking God's will is everything. While we're talking about that subject, I want to point to something in Numbers 21 that is pretty incredible. Everybody turn to Numbers 21 and tell me what your subject heading is. He read destroyed. Four or five verses later, do you have another one? So when we're looking at Numbers 21, you have the serpent lifted up. The medical community calls this the caduceus. That is a, a Greek perversion of the truth. When the Hebrews perverted it, they called it Nehushtan. But the original image in Numbers 21, as Israel is approaching the borders of Canaan, a faithful generation, supposed to be, ready to fight on God's behalf, they're all snake-bitten. They're being destroyed because of their own sin. And yet if they will look in Numbers 21 at a bronze pole of judgment with a symbol of sin on it, then they're healed from what is killing them. The next few chapters are Satan's next attempt to kill them. Balaam with sexual immorality. Balaam is working to get them to debase themselves so that they're not fit to be God's servants. There's this phrase that appears in Numbers 21. Look at Numbers 21 and verse 14 and tell me what it says. Anybody who wants to read it. This is what the book of the wars of the Lord says. The book of the what? Wars. Wars, wars of the? Lord. Whose war? Lords. Islam is wicked. Allah is the devil. There's just no way around it. He, right. He's Satan himself. It's an antichrist religion. We have no interest in embracing Chrislam because there's no such thing. Mm -hmm. But the nature of our God is to go to war with what causes sin so that men can be restored, the creation can be restored, and we can live in actual harmony. Not domination, harmony. That's the point, the Hebrew word shalom. There is a book of the wars of the Lord. Um, Paul, why don't you read Exodus 17, 13? This is the very first appearance of Joshua in all of the Bible. Exodus 17, 13. So Joshua overcame the, uh, the Amalekite army with the sword. Keep going. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. We don't have the book of the wars of the Lord. Maybe Moses is simply writing the book of Deuteronomy here. Maybe that's what's occurring. And it's recorded in Exodus, which would be kind of funny. But I kind of think the very first appearance of Joshua is to go to war with Amalek. And the way that you win the battle with Amalek is Moses' hands needed to stay lifted up to the throne. Right? Took brothers to do that. We need brothers. The conclusion of the battle in Exodus 17, they said Yahweh Nisi, which is pretty poorly translated, uh, Jehovah is my banner. But you remember we looked at the paleo, and it, the paleo was hands reaching from the earth Grabbing the throne of God, when man grabs hold of God's plan, he wins. Mm -hmm. Now, if the first appearance of Joshua in the book of the Bible is a war, 
that is going to go on from generation to generation until it's one. And Joshua is, needs to hear what's written in the book of uh, the wars of the Lord because he's going to destroy Amalek from under heaven. Then we might find a prophetic element in this. Uh, Mandy, why don't you read 1 John 3, 8. I only bring this up because you and I are soldiers in the armies of the heaven, of heaven. We're not conscripts. We're not fighting for money. We're not fighting for fame. We're not fighting for fortune. We're fighting because we're sons of our father. And what we want to do is blot out that which causes sin, that which is corrupted the creation. That's our job. Joshua is commanding the earthly armies only in respect to the heavenly plan. Does that make sense? Yes. If the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work, the reason that Joshua appeared was to destroy the devil's agents on the earth. So in this prophetic book, what we see is we see an anointed man whose name means Yahweh's salvation, who when he is in the will of God cannot be defeated. If he escapes the will of God, if he denies it, declines it, fails to seek it, he always loses. Sending us a very strong message. We must seek the will of God to win. Now that's interesting. Because most of the time what we do is we have our best men make their best plans and hope they will succeed. Strike one. When we don't do that, then we make careful plans, and then we ask the Lord to bless them. Strike two. Continuing on that well-intentioned path causes us to strike out with God and with man. What we have to do is make ourselves second in command. Second in command to the commander of the Lord's armies. We have to follow the plans that are outlined by the Spirit and confirmed by the Scripture. The Holy Spirit of God breathed onto the word, onto the page, the very syllables that we're pronouncing, and they are our prescription for victory. It may not seem wise, it may not seem expedient to march around Jericho. Is there anybody in the history of the world that would think that was a good plan? No. Did they have the right to deviate from the plan? No. If they did deviate from the plan, do you think that it would have achieved God's results? Could they have been well-intentioned and deviated from the plan? Of course they could. But that wouldn't mean that they were following God's master plan. J.J., read Amos 3.7. Frank, grab Exodus 26.30. Cody, grab Isaiah 14.24-27. Andrew. Take 1 Chronicles 28, 19. Judah, take Proverbs 19, 21. We'll stop there for a minute. Amos 3, 7. 
Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. Those prophets were good enough to write down what was revealed so that we can read them. We can look at the words of the prophets that Peter said we now have made more certain so that when we think we've heard from God, our job is to compare what we think we've heard from God with what has already been revealed. And if it's different than what has already been revealed, you are to reject it. All error, all error, Mark 12, 24 says comes from two places. You either fail to know the Word of God or you fail to understand the power of the Word of God. I, I mean, the Word and the Spirit must work together. I love that we're in a charismatic community. You do not have the right to hear from God in a way that contradicts what the Scripture already says. You, you don't have that right. Amen. What we do is we hear from God, we carefully compare it to the Word, and if there is a slight deviation, we have to go back to God because something's not wrong with Him. He's not inconsistent. Something's wrong with us. It is very, very easy to look into any book and see what you want to see. You know, I asked Jennifer if she'd go out on a date with me, and she said, there's not a chance in a million. I said, so there's a chance. <laughs> you hear what you want to hear sometimes. Other times, you hear the very thing you're afraid he might say. It, it's, we are pretty fragile human beings with very deceitful hearts. This is why we have the Word of God as as uh, guides along this walk so that there is absolutely no chance that we get off of the path. With that in mind, let's take Exodus 26.30. Set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown you on the mountain. What if they decided that the many thousands of pounds of silver in the bases to the tabernacle was overkill? What if they decided that the layers of the tabernacle were not necessary? What if they decided that the number of gold clasps holding up the curtains was too many? I mean, after all, we could put that to use for the poor, couldn't we? Mm -hmm. Then you would have deviated from the heavenly pattern. And what you built on earth, it wouldn't match what God had existed in the heavens and what people are looking at because ultimately that's important. What the people are seeing does not match the pattern from the heavens. It wouldn't make you an evil person, at least not any more evil than you already were. It, it wouldn't make you malicious. It wouldn't make, make you anything. It would just make you an error. If Joshua does not get this right, what happens to the people? They die. Because they're a nation of the sons of slaves. They are facing someone that has had 400 years to embed themselves. Walled cities. Do you think they were dragging around siege works in the desert with them? You think they had their trebuchet? You know, just, they're following the cloud by day, the fire by night, they're dragging along the trebuchet? They probably didn't, huh? So their entire existence depends on getting the will of God right. Good thing we're not in that position. Good thing we have other things to lean on. Good thing that 
we don't have to depend on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How about Isaiah 14, 24? The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely as I have planned, so will it be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people, and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? There are so many beautiful things to say about this. This is a prophecy about an oppressor that God brought on the people because it was his will to do so. And it was also his will to punish the oppressor for oppressing his people. <laughs> and it happens to foreshadow a future person called the Assyrian. I personally believe this is about the Antichrist. But what is more important than that is while he's speaking to Israel about Assyria, he says this is the plan for the whole world. See, what's at stake in Joshua 6 is not just about the inhabitants of Jericho. It's not about the inhabitants of Israel. It lays down a plan that the whole world is supposed to be able to look at and know something about God's plan for them. You know why? It's the first book of prophecy in the Bible. Okay? Now, that becomes very, very important then that you trust God for every syllable of His Word. But how difficult is that to do? Really, Lord? It's going to rain? It's going to rain enough to fill the earth, to cover the mountains? You're going to wipe out everybody? And how long do I have to build the boat? I'm going to preach for 120 years and only eight people are going to be saved? But what happens if Noah deviates? Do you know how many times in world history God's battle plan made no sense to men? We're going to judge the entire world based on what happened on a cross in the first century. I mean, that's incredible. That in and of itself is incredible. Can you imagine? You could make a Mel Brooks movie out of this. What would it be like for Joshua to go, I got a plan. And have to explain to the generals, commanders, lieutenants, whose babies are on the line. Wait till you hear this. We're not going to use our swords. We're not going to use slain stuff. You, you're not even going to have to stretch for a fight. What we're going to do is walk around in silence. Does that sound like a good plan to anybody? And yet what we're reading about is the total victory of God. The total destruction of the world. And the total salvation of the only people worth saving in Jericho. It's incredible. That God can do that kind of thing. It ought to encourage you in your situation, no matter how crazy it is. Do you really think He needs your finances? That He needs your wisdom? That He needs your business acumen? Do you really think that He needs you if He can reduce the kingdoms of the world with the sonic weapon of a shofar? Okay, how about First Chronicles 28, 19? 
all this David said, I have in writing from the hand of the Lord upon me. And he gave me understanding and all the details of the plan. Now, you love this. We like to have things in writing, right? Would you put that in writing for me? I learned a long time ago, what the bold print gives, the fine print taketh away. (laughs) I hope there are no lawyers here tonight. If there are, we're going to pray for your salvation before this is over. (laughs) Our church is growing. There are lawyers here. And publicans and tax collectors. I love to hear he had in writing from the Lord until you realize it's his hand that wrote it. David had in writing from the Lord by David's hand the new plans. Are you beginning to see why maybe the northern tribes weren't sure that David had actually heard from God? Let me get this straight. You've heard from God. You, uh... Your family is the only family that is going to, uh, to rule. Can you imagine how difficult that would be? But he's either right or he's wrong. And was David from the tribe of Judah? Is it possible that the scepter passed from Judah down through the ages to David? God either spoke to him or he didn't. It was either consistent with what had already been revealed or it wasn't. But let me tell you, if there was a verse that said... <clears throat> or maybe Ephraim, then you'd have every reason to reject what God said to David. God doesn't have two plans. He doesn't have multiple plans. He has a master plan. Theologians have many plans. God kind of made a mistake here. He wasn't sure how screwed up the people would be, so he has a really screwed up plan to fix it. They break them up very often into all kind of unique schemes. that God didn't need to change his mind. When we're thinking about the sanctity of God's plan, let's read Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. This is often read with the idea of, well, I had a lot of plans and dreams, and God worked through them anyway. Oh, man, that is such a sinful, that's like a plan B kind of God. That is uh, people that talk about the permissive will of God. Was there a plan B for Jericho? What it means literally is your hearts are full of plans and the right way you think something ought to be done. But it's God's purpose that ultimately must prevail, not your plans. In other words, you're wrong. And he is right. That's an incredible thing. Because we all kind of feel like our situation's unique, you know? I mean, given the same set of circumstances, I'm sure you would have done the same thing. Well, I'm as wicked as you, so we might have, but that doesn't make it right. The whole point is that God has a master plan that we must adhere to. Amen. The reason that I love Joshua is in one chapter he gets it wrong, but in the next chapter he gets it so right. He gives me hope that you can recover from failure. He gives me hope for the failure that feels inevitable because it's not fatal. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. 
Let's do this. Let's remember that where there is no conflict, there can be no crown. Tonight, let us agree to take God's initiative, God's plan, and ultimately God's power to put the gates of hell on the defensive. It is so easy to harbor an offense and to become more unyielding than a barred city. The word makes the extraordinary statement that a man's patience gives him wisdom and it's to his glory to overlook an offense. Do you know why? Because you go, ah, God, you have a master plan. And I know this hasn't caught you by surprise. You're at work in my situation and you will reward those who seek you. And as long as you're surrounding yourself with people who are seeking God, mistakes are just temporary. They're not your permanent station. Okay? Now, you're hearing me say this kind of stuff a lot because I make a lot of mistakes. And God's not through with me. We have reason for hope. If we got off plan, we can repent and get back on plan. What is required is that you admit when you're off plan so that in humility, God can change your situation and raise you back up to the right plan. That's required. Joshua 1.8, I want to read to you before we go forward. Do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it when you feel like it. Meditate on it day and night. Is there a third option? No. So let's put it in the King Eric for just a minute. <laughs> Always be thinking about the word. Yes. Never let it be absent from your thoughts, your decisions. Because your, you're not capable of making good decisions. If you watch that in humanity, you'll get downright discouraged with humanity. The best of us are pretty miserable at this. So that you may be careful to do everything written in it. What do you have to do? Everything that is written in it. Your hearing from God is subject to what is written. I'm going to say that about 10,000 times because you are crazy charismatics. I saw a license plate that had three twos on it. Then I saw two girls and I knew one of them had to be my wife. It's God speaking it, I mean, it's absurd. I was listening to the radio and I, you know, everything that you think that you hear from God is subject to the Word of God. Period. That's the only... Let's, let, let me prove that out for you quickly without running through all of them for you. Are you told to weigh prophecy? Yes. yes. What do you weigh it against? And not just the Word, the community's concept of the Word. In other words, prophecies are not private and hidden things. It must bear the scrutiny of the entire community's understanding of the Word of God, or it's to be rejected. The reason that we have a canon of Scripture is because we have thousands of years of testimony to the truth of what has been revealed, and its consistency through all 66 books. I'm not going to teach on the contiguous nature of the Word of God, but anybody who is in the Acts 2 class, you find them. And uh, they have been so overloaded with Scripture it ought to be coming out of their ears about it. With that in mind, 
Verse 1 becomes an extraordinary verse. <laughs> Read it for me out loud. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. It's clear that a long time before Joshua's armies began to march around Jericho, somebody else had laid siege to the city. Godly oppression was upon them. You're used to hearing about oppression coming from the devil. It is possible for God to lay his hand on something so that they will not even leave their city. Their city's military didn't leave. Their city's economy shut down. Their social life shut down. There's no area of the city if nobody is going in and nobody is coming out that has not ground to a halt and the Israelite army hasn't done anything. The chapter begins with God's siege of the city. Wow, that's good. That's incredible. Yeah. Peyton, would you read Numbers 13, 31 through 14, 4? The city of Jericho's morale was completely defeated before Joshua even entered the battlefield. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in their own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Mm. Or a pastoral search committee and find a new pastor. Listen, 38 years have passed since this scripture to where we're at in Joshua 6.1. Notice the complete reversal of roles. The first time Israel comes to this area, they are quaking with fear. They say things they could not possibly know to be true. The land of ours, all who are living in it, and this based on your couple days there? How could you know that? Our children and our wives will become slaves to them. God heard that, and he was so upset with their faithlessness that he raised up their children in their place to go conquer them. The very ones that were supposed to be taken as slaves are the ones that came in and totally conquered. Amen. This is because God likes to take the weak. He likes to take the underdog and overcome the strong. But there's a whole other thing here. We know because of Joshua's faithfulness to cross the Jordan, 
We know because of the circumcision at Gilgal. We know because they have heard from God while they're standing there the state of Jericho. We don't really know whether Jericho was scared the first time or not. We don't really know whether or not they were quaking with fear the first time or not because God's people weren't faithful. God has a master plan, and as it unfolds, all that has to happen is God's people be faithful to that plan. If we are, we see God's results. If we aren't, you never know how close you were to victory. Because victory never depended upon your estimates. It depended upon your faithfulness. So when Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb got there the first time, they might have been able to do exactly the same thing. We'll never know because of their faithlessness. Oh, man, listen to me, Christian. If you could just be faithful one more day, the sun might rise on your situation. One more day, God might send you encouragement. If Saul had waited just a few more minutes, Samuel arrived right as he finished making the sacrifice that showed his faithlessness. Hang in there. Hang, Hang in there. Because God can do more with your little bit than you can do with your whole life. I'd like to hand out some passages that help reinforce this battle being the Lord's. Christy, take Exodus 14, 13 through 14. Chloe, take Isaiah 37, 33 through 36. Mandy, take 2 Chronicles 20, 17. Jennifer, Take Matthew 26, 51 through 54. Abigail. Take Revelation 17, 14. Gabriel. Take Romans 16, 20. Those of you not familiar with what we're doing, this is a scripture from every major section of the Bible. From the law, the prophets, the writings. The New Testament law being the uh, Gospels and Acts the New Testament writings being the epistles, and the New Testament book of prophecy being Revelation. Exodus 14, 13 and 14. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. What was the battle plan to defeat the military might of Egypt? Be faithful, quiet your spirit, and move out into the water. Stand still is really a bad translation. It means quiet yourself. It doesn't mean stand still. In fact, nothing happened until they took a faithful step, and then the water split. Psalms actually say the waters ran from them. But the, the point that I'm making here is God had a plan. They had to walk in that plan. How hard it was, though, while the army was bearing down on them. How hard it was while they were staring at their children. How hard are the decisions that we have to make. It still always comes down to one thing. Obey the voice of God and the word of God. Who had the next one? Isaiah 37-33-36 Therefore this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter the city or shoot in the arrow here. He will not come before it with sheep or build safe by the way, he came, he will return, he will not enter the city for your soul. I will defend the city and save it for the sake of my 
for my sake and for the sake of David my servant. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Syrian camp. When the people got up in the next morning, they were all dead bodies. Have you ever wonder why the angel showed up in Joshua before the battle? Because when people don't know if the angel's going to show up or not, they have a hard time being faithful. Joshua knew who was with it. I, I love Joshua, but God gave him a little help. Amen? Amen. Let me ask you, is he giving you a little help? Do you have reason to know that the armies of heaven are with you? Are you filled with the commander and the general right now? If you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, how could you wonder whether or not he was with you? How could you read the last part of Matthew? And wonder whether he's with you. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. See, sometimes we're faithless in the battle because we're not sure he's with us. But shouldn't you be sure he's with you? Of course, it's the same question that Joshua had for the angel. You for me or for my enemy? The question is not, is he with you? The question is, are you with him? You can stand in the presence of God and not obey the presence of God. I watch it every time we have a service. Go ahead to the next passage. Second Chronicles twenty seventeen. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. They had taken their stand in front of the temple with their babies in their arms, it says. Their little ones, their wives and children, their babies. Are there. That's not such an easy thing to stand firm when a vast superior army is coming towards you. They're superior to you, but they're not superior to your God. So you either heard from God and it agrees with His Word, or you didn't. If you're wrong, your children die. If you're right, they'll live. Man, we love to read about the victories, don't we? Yeah. When the Bible says the battle is the Lord's, it's because there's a book of the wars of the Lord. He's already laid out his battle plan. He's already told the enemy, I'm going to kick you on that side of your face and there's not a thing you can do about it. He's been announcing it since Genesis 3. The real problem is that we're not always with him. He's with us, but we're not with him. If we can get his heart, get his mind, if we can get with him, we stop losing. Okay. By the way, he's more than willing to set ambushes. Mm-hmm. He's more than willing to make you look like you're on the run, like you're on the retreat. He's more than willing to let your reputation suffer that his might grow. It's not a problem for him. I mean, it's not a problem for him. Sometimes what we think of as loss is not loss. You're supposed to lose your life just to be in the army. You can't lose what you've already lost. Uh, In the 20 years that I've been in ministry, I've had a lot of public failure. What I can look back on and see that I couldn't see in the midst of the failure is it wasn't failure because it wasn't the end of it. Sometimes it was a brand new beginning with a new lesson learned, with a a new direction, a new fervor, a new hunger and passion. See, we really have to get hold of this. 
Because if we can grab hold of the plan of God, then we've already succeeded. If we make up our own plans, you failed no matter whether you seem to succeed or not. The reason that these clown kingdoms are all around us is because they think they are succeeding. It looks to them like victory. And of course, it is an abominable failure. If you have to drop Power Rangers out of a plane for an Easter service that you've paid people to come to and gave away cars because the resurrection of the dead is just not enough to interest people. If that's what you have to do, and then it's a success to you because 30% more carnal pagans came to fellowship with your carnal pagans. <laughs> that's, that's not success, but it's celebrated as success. Success might look at taking a crowd of 5,000 people, reducing it to 12 men who will change the world because the other 4,988 were not fit for the kingdom of God. Okay, who had the next one? Matthew 26, 51-54. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scripture be fulfilled? Mm. That it says it must happen this way. At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, I am leading a rebellion. You got it. You got it. You need to pay careful attention to this. It might settle some things in your hearts. There are 12 men here plus Jesus, and there are two swords. One man grabs his sword, cuts off Malchus, the servant of the high priest's ear. Was it sin? Yes. Jesus repudiates it. He takes that ear and he puts it right back on. He says, enough of this or no more of this. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. Who told him to bring the sword? Jesus. Malchus, was he sinning? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's arresting Jesus. What did Jesus say about it? Jesus said, hey, this had to be fulfilled. Do you mean everybody can be sinning and God still be at work in it? And he'll still hold you accountable for getting it wrong. Meditate on it. Maybe God will give you some insight. Okay, how about Revelation seventeen fourteen? And with him will be his call, chosen and faithful for followers. I love the book of Revelation like the book of Joshua because it forecasts victory before we even started the battle. Tells us how we're going to win. <laughs> I mean, the book of Revelation is written almost 2,000, yeah, almost 2,000 years ago from now. And it's telling us how we're going to win a battle we haven't faced yet. It's almost like God has a plan and he reveals it to his prophets. Okay, who had the next one? Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I'm going to put this foot on that side of your face and there's not a thing you can do about it. He announces it over and over and over and over. First time he says it is in Genesis 
3. And the enemy is powerless to do a thing about it, just like Jericho is powerless to defend themselves as long as God's people are faithful. So let's just be honest. The real battle is not even with the enemy, is it? Okay, let's do this. Let's read verse 2. Somebody get it for me. Then the Lord said to Joshua, God, they both two plural unities, two men reading as one. (laughs) Or the two donkeys, the mother and its colt, and Jesus sat on them. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. I want you to hear this. See, I have delivered. Is that incredible? I have delivered. From God's point of view, the battle is already won. He has accounted for the king, the fighting men, the gold, the silver, the men, the women, the cattle, the sheep, and the donkeys. They each have already been assigned their use. Joshua is fighting from the position of victory He is not fighting for victory. From God's point of view, it is already won. All he has to do is carry it out. You have to picture God as the master planner going, you had one job, man. One job. (laughs) From God's point of view, the victory is done because he has laid out the perfect plan. The only flaw in God's perfect law or perfect plan is us. He chose to use a wet noodle for a sword. Of course, if you don't have to face the bully, you can get your little sister. And your little sister can beat him six ways from Sunday. That is kind of impressive, isn't it? What if God chose the weak, lowly, and despised things of the world to whip the strong just to say, yeah, I did that. (laughs) I mean, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? Yes. Let me hand you all some scripture. Is that okay? Rick Lohan, would you take uh, John 12, 30 through 31? Keith, would you take Matthew 12, 28 through 29? Rob, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Nolan, Ephesians 1, 19 through 21. Uh, Judah, take Romans 8, 37. Daniel, take Revelation 12, 11. Then we're going to move off of verse 2 and pick up the pace. But I'll be surprised if you don't want to hear these. We do. Fifty-four minutes in and almost two verses. You could go to Pastor Colgate's church for a very long time and not get as many scriptural insights as you got in fifty-four minutes. But they said it. They go to church for them, not for God. Right? Okay. So who's got John twelve? John twelve thirty through thirty-one. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon the world. 
Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. When I say that Joshua is fighting from the position of victory, he's not fighting for victory, this is what I mean. The scripture declares that he is driven out. It's just your job to faithfully enforce what the scripture says. He's not driven out if you're not faithful. But if you stand faithful, he's driven out. Matthew 12, 28. Matthew 12, 28. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob the house. In Jesus' view, the strong man is tied. You can rob his house. Unless you're scared of him and you don't act like and don't think he's tied, then you can't rob his house. You understand what we're saying? Jericho is already defeated. All they have to do is carry out what the Word says. But if they don't carry out what the Word says, then it will not look as if Jericho is defeated. It's a a negative self-fulfilling thing. When you are unfaithful, God's plan does not work in your immediate life. Because His plan is dependent upon your faithfulness. But His plan works 100% of the time when you trust the plan. Okay, let's take uh, Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. From heaven's point of view... The enemy is already disarmed. It's already beaten. Already triumphed over. Unless, of course, you rearm him. Wow. Wow. Mm. Let that sink in for a minute. The enemy has no power over you unless you give him that power. Wow, what does faithless speech do? What does deviation from the word do? What does fear do? What do these things do? They give the enemy armaments against you where otherwise he would have no armament. Ephesians 1, 19. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Listen, you silly Pentecostals. We're always praying for more love, more power, more of His Spirit in our life. These are our songs. These are our attitudes. From heaven's point of view, you have incomparably great power. You already have it. You just have to act in faith. When you are not acting in faith, then it's as if you are powerless. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I am not a uh, word of faith guy. Uh, I love many of the teachings of Kenneth Hagin. I cannot stand Kenneth Copeland. But Hagin was right about something. We are very often waiting for Jesus to do something he's told us to do and empowered us to do. And he will hold you accountable when you do not do it. It is his plan that you be his body on earth. He does not leave the throne to come do things for you. 
Romans 8.37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Yes, we are conquerors. More than conquerors. When you stand in faith, you are already the conqueror. Man, is that a perspective change that we need? We cannot let a victim mentality creep into the church. Amen. Amen. We cut off your right arm, your left arm. If we leave you a bleeding little stump on the ground, that stump is victorious over the world. I mean, it is. Uh, We really have to get hold of this. Half of the church is obsessed with heaven in the next life, so they don't care about this one. And the other half is obsessed with treasure on earth. Okay? What we are supposed to be is men and women of faith carrying out God's will on the planet. That's what we're supposed to be. Amen? Amen. Let's take Revelation 12, 11. They overcame, they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives much to shrink back from death. They what? Overcame. How can we overcame in the past, past tense, something that we have not yet faced? Because God has already said it and it will be done. The question is not will it be done. The question is who will do it? The faithful. God has already said that followers of Jesus Christ overcome the world by the word of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb. The question is will you actually be a follower of Jesus Christ or will you be a faithful follower of yourself? How would you know if you're following Jesus Christ? It's going to come by the witness of His Spirit and the testimony of His Word, both. I could not tell you enough that you need two witnesses for everything that you do, the Spirit and the Word. You, you need them. You need them like a pilot needs a compass. And, and not just a compass, but an altimeter. Yeah? Flying the sun or the earth without an altimeter. You need them both. Okay, I want to show you something about the heptatic structures that are at work here. Read verses 3 through 4. It died. Okay, read verses 3 through 4 and we will revive this. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. This begins to lay down a pattern that we call a heptatic structure. I'm going to start in very broad terms with some things. I don't want to teach the three days and the three nights. I've taught it so many times that I I, I imagine you could find it if you wanted. Pastor Sutherland has taught it and done an amazing job. I want to tell you that Joshua 5, verses 9 through 10, places... The nation of Israel at Gilgal rolling away the reproach of Egypt. And then he says on the 14th day of a month with two names, Nisan and Abib, they have the Passover together. Okay. Uh, when you read Mark 14, verse 1, you see that Passover and unleavened bread are often referred to as the same day. And there's a reason for that. The uh, Passover lamb is killed in the evening of the 14th, and the entire day of the 15th is unleavened bread. 
So they combine those, much like we say we're off for Christmas break when we're really off for Christmas Eve and Christmas. We call it all Christmas. Does that make sense? Yeah. New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. We simply say we're celebrating New Year's. So what you find out in Joshua 5.11 is that the day after the Passover or first day of unleavened bread, which would be the 16th of Nisan, they ate produce from the land. In Joshua 5.12, the manna stops falling or from heaven or appearing on, on the earth from heaven. What's really interesting is Jesus was crucified on the 14th. He was in the grave on the 15th, the evening of the 14th, the whole day and evening of the 15th, day and evening of the 16th. And on the 17th, which was the same day that the manna stopped uh, appearing, Jesus was out of the grave by dark because that started the next day. This is why in our gospel narratives, we see that on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, he was not there. He, he was not there before light came up, the gospels said. I don't really want to debate that tonight. Uh, I've taught it enough that we don't have to. But where this becomes much more interesting to tonight's study is what that means is that the Sunday that they found Jesus not in the tomb was also the Feast of Unleavened Bread. No, Feast of first fruits, Because it is supposed to be the day after the Sabbath following um, Passover, Passover. If you follow this through, we have the chronology in Joshua then. At the 10th of Nisan, they show up on the plains of the Jordan. They cross over it. After they cross over on the 14th, they have their event at Gilgal. On the 15th, they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On the 16th, uh, you eat the produce of the land. On the 17th, the manna stops. And the first day of the week, let me write this out, the first day of the week, the fe Feast of First Fruits Day, It's the first day of the Battle of Jericho. Did you hear in the story of Jericho, on the first day do this, on the second day do this, yep. on the third, and on the seventh day do it seven times? You ever really got yourself, I almost said your panties in a twist, but we don't say that. <laughs> Knickers in a twist, that's the British, we, we can't do that either, can we? Have you ever got yourself in a conundrum <laughs> trying to figure out about the Sabbath. What do we do about the Sabbath? Yes. I just want to point out that the kingdom of Jericho fell on the Sabbath. <laughs> and the people were marching around it not just once, seven times. If they were supposed to be resting on that day, they violated it according to God's plan. Well, we'll just pick back up with that some other time. Let's do this. While we're talking about hepatic structures, <laughs> Pastor Wade was kind enough to type out many of these today. Uh, he is a extraordinary research. I learn all of the time from him. And one of the things that we did is we started looking at God's fascination with sevens. In Genesis 1, the very first verse in Genesis, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Hebrew, there's seven words there. Everything that God does is based on a pattern of seven. And that's an important thing for you to begin to grasp because he's been teaching it to mankind since we were created. In that same sentence, there's 28 Hebrew letters. In other words, it's divisible by seven. There are 14, 14 Hebrew words in Genesis 1-2. So we see patterns of seven repeating. In Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-1, the earth appears 21 times. In Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-3, which is the creation account. That's why we're choosing those. The creation account does not perfectly match our chapter 1 and 2. They dropped the chapter in the wrong place. You see 35 occurrences of Elohim, always divisible by 7. In the first chapter of Genesis, you see 7 times God saw something. 7 occurrences of God said. In Genesis 2-2, we haven't confirmed that there is a 7-day week. That ought not be a shocker to anybody, 7-day week. Why though? Why not a 5-day week? Why not a nine-day week? Why did God choose six days of work and one day of rest that he called holy? Because he wanted to lay down a pattern for all time that nobody could miss. Every year in Israel, there are seven feasts. Those seven feasts take place over seven months. There are seven weeks between Passover and Pentecost that are counted. There are seven years for a yearly Sabbath. Every seven years, you get a Sabbath. There are seven cycles of yearly Sabbaths, and you get a Jubilee. Could you get the idea God's pretty fascinated with sevens? In this chapter, Joshua 6, we have seven trumpets. Of course, we have 14 occurrences of the word trumpet or shofar. There are seven priests leading the way. There's a seven-day campaign to defeat Jericho. By the way, it's also seven years uh, of conquest from the time they crossed the Jordan to the time the book of Joshua finishes with the inheritance of the people. I mean, we could do this so much that we didn't put them all. Seven times around Jericho on the seventh day. Consider that what you're seeing, we showed you them in Genesis, which is the law. We're showing you them in this chapter of Joshua, which is prophets, and then Let's take a a quick glance at the book of Revelation. Those of you that were in that study may remember some of these. There are seven churches in Revelation, seven seals, seven trumpets, interesting, seven bowls, seven lampstands, seven spirits before the throne of God, seven stars in the hand of the Messiah, seven blazing lamps or burning torches, seven tidal pairs given to the church, seven promises to the overcomer, To he who overcomes, I will. Seven unique promises. Seven horns. Seven eyes. Seven angels. Seven thunders. Seven thousand killed in an earthquake. Seven heads. Seven crowns. Seven plagues. Seven hills. Seven kings. Seven blessed or statements. Do you get the idea that God is interested in seven? What he says about seven, to start with, is that he worked on day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, and something was special about day seven. It was holy. 
What we gleaned from that, unfortunately, has been that you're not supposed to do anything one day a week. Well, on the seventh day, they did an awful lot in Jericho. <laughs> it was a debate in Jesus' day. How dare you heal somebody on the Sabbath? I think it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Yeah. Now, the reason that I'm showing you this is in the first prophetic book in the Bible, we march around once a day for six days. The people are completely silent, but the priests are never silent. Say that with me. Priests are... <laughs> priests are never silent. And on the seventh day, they march around seven times. There's an intensification on that seventh day. The plan of God is coming to a close. We had six days to work it all out. On the seventh day, it's on. It's happening. While we're considering that, you should know that on the Hebrew calendar, according to their reckoning of time, we're in the year 5,777. Let me read you something. This is 2 Peter. You can turn that off. Verse, or chapter 3, verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. Anybody remember what Jericho, how it was destroyed? Fire. Being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. What are we not supposed to forget? This one thing. With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I'd like to show you something on a board. I'm going to take a picture of it. I couldn't figure out how to do it electronically. If you're considering the tree in Genesis, in the garden, and the tree in Revelation 22 in the garden as an alpha eternity and an omega eternity. How long was Adam in the garden before he was kicked out? Was he 16? No idea. Nick's got no idea. How about the rest of you? Was he 300? Anybody know? No, we have no idea when Genesis 1-1 says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth what time that was. What we do know is from the time that he separated light and darkness, said there was evening and morning, the first day that we can begin <coughs> counting from the first day. At some point in Alpha Eternity, and I'm not going to go through the 14 scriptures written in my Bible in John 1 as a note that say before time began. 
I don't need to do that with you. You're Bible students. You can do it. There's a point at which time began. At some point, he said there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven days that we're going to work in. For six days a man will work and then something special happens. Jewish theology is based on this, especially eschatology. And when you're looking at Jewish eschatology, it's interesting that in all of our pre, mid, and post craziness, we've never really considered what Jews were already teaching in Peter's day. And what they were already teaching in Peter's day is that from the time that God said, let there be one day, to the time that Abraham came, was about 2,000 years. And from the time of Abraham to the time of Messiah, I'll put too many zeros. Would be about 4,000 years from Adam. From the time of Messiah to the time of the day of the Lord, they said, would be another 2,000 years totaling six days. What they believed about the day of the Lord was that it would institute something in the 7,000th year called the Olam Haba, world to come. Now there's a reason that I'm telling you this. If you want Hebrew titles, the time period between the garden and Abraham is Yemi Tohu. Who knows what Tohu means? The time of chaos or destruction. Before God befriended Abraham, they say it's a time of destruction. Once Abraham began receiving instruction from God, they call it Yemot, days of Torah. They believed that as long as the world had been in time of destruction without Torah, God would leave them under the Torah's instruction until a day when Messiah comes. And this time period... would be Yemi Mashiach, the days of Messiah. In other words, they saw three 2,000-year periods in which God was working. That He let the world be in chaos for 2,000 years, under Torah for 2,000 years, and that Messiah would come somewhere between the 4,000th year and the 6,000th year, and once He came, they would have a Sabbath, millennial-type situation where the lamb would lie down with the lion for a thousand years. Now, the reason that I'm going over this with you is because obviously Jesus came around the 4,000 year mark, which of course we've renamed 0 BC. There was no 0. You go from BC, 1 BC to 1 AD, there can be no year 0. There was no redaction. Obviously he came around this time. And people were looking for a Messiah in that time. They were looking for it because it was classic Jewish eschatology. They were also in Daniel's fourth kingdom. They saw Rome and they were looking. 
I don't have time to teach those things, but in a broader concept, Jewish children would ask their parents, why is Messiah not come? You know what the answer was? Because Israel's not repented. Because they're sin. They believed that there were six days where you would get rid of your sin and Messiah would come somewhere between the fourth day and the sixth to lead you into a Sabbath for the whole world. You know where they begin to get ideas like that? Because they saw Joshua march around Jericho for six days and then the kingdom of the world became theirs. The reason that I want to show you and I'm taking the time to do this is Peter said a day is as a thousand years. Wonder where he got that idea. Somebody turn to Psalm 90 and verse 4. It's a much better picture of this in my Bible if you want it. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. You mean if God counts days and the seventh is important and he counts weeks and the seventh is important and he counts months and the seventh is important and he counts feasts and the seventh is important and he counts Sabbath weeks of years and the seventh is important. Do you think he might be trying to teach us something? Okay. If you had to just take a wag theory kind of guess, I would say that whenever... We've eclipsed that six-year mark. We ought to be looking for a dramatic intensification in the kingdom of the world to become the kingdom of our God. I'm not date-setting. I, I, I don't do that. I just couldn't help but notice there was no time in here where God looked at him and said, this is pretty tough for you. Why don't we just fly you out of here? But I won't teach on that either. I think it's sufficient that I just upset you and move on. <laughs> Somebody read verse 5. Did you learn something about hepatic structures? You will sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like new grass of the morning. (laughs) I know, I'm sorry. Uh, Verse 5 of chapter 6 in Joshua. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, I have all the people, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse, and the people will go up. Every man straight in. The wall of the city will collapse. The wall of the city will collapse. The only person who's going to save in the entire city lives in the wall. He picked a prostitute who lives in the initial site of destruction. Can we say that the Lord knows how to save the worst people from the worst places when they repent? I mean, where are we going to hang that scarlet cord? Well, hang it on the wall that I'm going to start the destruction of the world by tearing down. Are you sure you want to do that? Well, it's the same God who hung a serpent on a bronze pole as a symbol of salvation and hung his son on a cross. See, is it destruction or is it victory? I'd say the day that Rahab's house got torn down is the day that she entered God's house. You can be so sure God's trying to kill you and what He's trying to do is free you. You're already supposed to give your life away. Are you very invested in your reputation and what people think about you? It might be the very thing that's keeping you from being faithful. 
the best, very best pedigree for a man of God is a lost reputation. <laughs> I, it is. When somebody's taken even your good name, then all you have left is to cling to his name. That's all there is. Where would we go, Lord? You have the very words of life. Thousands could leave you. I'm not. You're all I got. It's an incredible truth, isn't it? Rahab is both a miracle and a tremendous testimony. Think about this. How do we know God's judgment is right on Jericho? Well, his word says it. That's true. Uh, He prophesied it 400 years in advance and bringing it about. That's true. We know his judgment is right because there was salvation knowledge in Jericho or there's no way that Rahab got saved. Mm -hmm. She's a testimony for the remnant and against the mass. Mm -hmm. She sided with God so she survives it. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. And where did God put her? At ground zero. Mm -hmm. You notice they didn't say... What you need to do, Rahab, is you need to move yourself right out of this bordello that you live in. I said you need to take this bordello and hang a symbol of hope outside of it. Of course, he shut down all commerce before this happened. He shut up the city. Nobody's doing anything. You know, something happens in our lives when we have to stop and take stock of our life. And when you realize you're standing in a position that God is going to destroy, you got a way of getting right with the Lord. <laughs> Somebody read 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10. Who's going to do it? I think uh, Justin politely got his hand up. So let's let Justin read that. 2 Peter 2, and we're going to read 4 through 10. Uh, who back here? Nolan, you read 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 7. Somebody else? Sam? <laughs> Sorry, Rob. Read Ezekiel 18, 30 through 32. The point of these passages will become very clear. I want you to understand that God can take a situation that seems relatively hopeless and he can pull salvation right out of it and still judge the people that didn't trust him. It's an incredible thing. It's a good thing for judgment to begin with the house of God. You ought to thank righteous people when they strike you. It's an oil. It's a kindness. When God loves you enough to discipline you, it's a beautiful thing because it means he's treating you as a son. It means that he is perfecting you. That's the point. We have a way of believing that it means that you're disqualified. The one who is disqualified is the one that cannot admit failure, cannot acknowledge mistake, and so they cannot be corrected. Okay, Second Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who is distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, 
For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Would you ever have known that Lot was righteous from reading the account in Genesis? No. I personally wanted to kill him myself when I read what he... I mean, in South Texas, you can't even get in an indictment for murdering a guy that does what Lot did with his kids. When you consider that in the law, Genesis 19, it's where you can read about Lot, that the Lord saves Lot even though his own actions were highly questionable, and that in the prophets, Joshua 6, the Lord saves Rahab even though her own actions were highly questionable, and that in the writings, all of the Psalms, the Lord saves David even though his own actions were highly questionable, it ought to compel you to believe that the Lord desires that all men be saved. Rahab is called a whore throughout the scripture. She's never called a liar. It's incredible. And what are Christians fascinated with? But she told a lie and she's considered righteous. Please don't say those things to me. It makes me think badly of you. It does. It makes me wonder why you see her life so clearly and your life escapes you. There could be no better gift that anybody could ever give you than a sober view of your own actions. If you would like to read, since I did not read them, a couple psalms that give you an idea just how screwed up David was, how about you read Psalm 51? Or Psalm 6. Pastor Wade, would you read Psalm 6? It's, it's just a couple verses. By couple, I mean like nine. <laughs> All the rest of you stay in your passages because we will be on time as best as I can. If not, I've just taught you to forgive mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Psalm chapter, chapter 6, verse 1. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. No one remembers you when he is dead. Who praises you from the grave? Hey, I just got stuck here for a minute. Don't just spoon me while you're mad at me, Lord. Uh, I, I, I'm in agony here. And if you kill me, I won't be able to praise you from the, from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> Things ever been so hopeless you wanted to die? Yes. Sunday's message was about Elijah asking God to kill him. God never answered that prayer. Ever. Elijah's alive today. And he pops up in history every now and then to give us hope. David resorts to going, don't discipline me while you're mad. If you, if you kill me, I won't be able to say good things about you. When you read the writings, most people, many people who really love the Lord, 
identify strongly with the struggle that is in them because you see the battle, the internal conflict between the man who is credited with righteousness but is not living righteously and he's trying to live righteously but he keeps disappointing himself. What does David rely on here? God's love. Read, read it one more time. I can't remember which verse that is. Uh, that last one. Uh, you can start at the beginning. It won't take long to get there. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Why would he be saved? Because the Lord loves him. And when you know how much the Lord loves you, you are compelled to love him. We love because he first loved us. Amen. What we see with Lot is that God saved him and still held Sodom and Gomorrah accountable. What we see is that God held Jericho. He never lets sin go unpunished, but he saves those who respond to his love. You see it in the law, the prophets, and the writings. Who had 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 7? This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What does God want? All All men to be saved. We better get on God's side there. Keep going. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Let me get this uh, out there. He wants all men to be saved, and Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for how many men? All men. So we're going to destroy the whole city of Houston. We're going to burn the thing to the ground. Except we're going to save a whore and a few people who are in her bordello with her. How do you think that would sit with the church world? turns out that the things that men despise, God loves. And the things that men love, God hates. You do a careful review of Jesus' ministry and you're going to find that he is angry with one group of people. Those that cannot admit their mistakes and so they will not come to him. The whole world was having trouble understanding why Jesus was hanging out with the people that he was hanging out with. And he was doing it because they went to John to be baptized. They wanted to be clean. As a people, when somebody wants to be clean, we help them get clean. When somebody doesn't want to get clean, you put all the force of God Almighty on top of the city so that they're scared to go outside of their house until they change their mind. Uh, Exodus 18, 30 through 32. Ezekiel, or, Ezekiel, I'm very sorry. Ezekiel 18, 30 through 32. Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed, and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. 
Could that get any clearer? Yeah. You know why the world rejoices when a pastor falls? Because they are wicked beyond description. We ought to weep. We ought to tear our clothes and weep. Look at what God is saying over and over and over. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses so that sin will not be your downfall. He knows they're sinning and he doesn't want them to die in their sin. I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Repent and live. The whole goal of God's judgment is to bring repentance. That's that's the goal. Okay, so now let's read verse 5 again. Uh, Joshua 6, verse 5, one more time. When you hear them sound a long blast upon the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse, and the people will go up, every man is straight up. I want to show you something. A long blast on the trumpet. It so happens that our handsome pastor is off away with his wife, and our musical pastor <laughs> and Pastor Chubby is here. So we have a... Which is which? You be honest. You be honest. If you were going to picture me with a musical instrument, it would be the tuba, wouldn't it? <laughs> the pastor can play the shofar, and I want you to hear it. That's an instrument interesting way to choose to defeat the world, isn't it? Nobody in here fell down. (laughs) The wall to the back of my house didn't crumble. If it's a sonic weapon, I don't know how it's a sonic weapon. Of course, when you look at this, this didn't start off this long, did it? It was compressed into curls on the side of the king of the sheep's head like a crown. This is actually the crown of the king of the sheep. And it had to be emptied of its blood. It had to be circumcised of its flesh. And of course, it doesn't make any sound unless it's filled with the Ruach HaKodesh. What is God's weapon of choice? Those that wear the crown of the king of the sheep who have been covered in his emptied blood, circumcised in their hearts, and are filled with the Spirit of God. That is a sonic weapon. Because when you are filled with the Word of God and moved by the Spirit of God, the world cannot stand up to you. And you do the strangest things, like kill all of the beautiful people and save the horse. God is an interesting God, huh? I wouldn't have saved Lot. I'd have killed him first. I'm I'm being really, really honest. It's a good thing that I'm not God. And it's a good thing that he's in control. And you entrust yourself to him. Amen? Amen. Let's read something so that you will have an even firmer grasp on this. Patricia... Take Acts 14, 15 through 17.
13, 15 through 17, and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We too are human, just like you. We proclaim the good news to you, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the loving God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. He did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling your hearts with joy and gladness. He did not leave himself without witness. On day one, the people were silent, but who blew the shofar? The priest. On day two, the people were silent, but who blew the shofar? Day three, people silent, but the priest blew the shofar. Day four, people silent, priest blew the shofar. On day five, people silent, the priest blew the shofar. On day six, people silent, but the priest blew the shofar. On the last day, the last chance that anybody would have, the priest went around seven times blowing the shofar. You think God's merciful? The walls didn't fall till the people joined the priest. When the people began to use what God gave them, their own voices, filled with the Ruach HaKodesh of God, when the people joined the priest example, the world system came crumbling down. God has had a righteous remnant, a seven, in every generation, on every day, no matter how hopeless it looked, and they accurately have sounded the alarm. The kingdom of God does not happen on earth till the people join the priest, because he has a nation of priests. Does that make sense to you? This is why we can't elect our leaders to do our work for us. It's why we can't look for some great man of God and then think we're great because we hang around them. It is when the people's voice joined the priest's voice that the kingdom of God got formed on earth. Come on, that's better than your acting like words. Okay. Uh, read 11 through 15 of Joshua 6. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the people returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. This is so strange, by the way, in Bible history. Do you know where uh, the priests were when they crossed the Jordan? They're out front with the ark. You know when they crossed the Red Sea where the priests were? Out front. front. Always out front. In this case, there was a group of people before the Lord's presence that he had commanded to be there, and a group of people following the Lord's presence. Can I tell you in every congregation there's a group of people that are out in front doing what God has said, Mm -hmm. and there's a group of people trying to figure out what to do following the rest? Can I tell you that in the first coming, there was a group of Jews who believed what Jesus said, and they came in, and they've been ahead of his presence always. 
and there's a group of Jews that are going to come only after they see the ark and they're following it. Wow. I tell you that there's an early and latter remnant in everything that you do. On the seventh time, they go around seven days. On the topic of violating the Sabbath, I would just like to submit Matthew 12, 12. How much more valuable is man than sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Um, I believe in the Jewish Roots Movement. I take very seriously the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim. I wrestle with these concepts all of the time, and I admit to everybody who wants to make an issue of it, I'm a dirty Sunday worshiper. (laughs) I do it for a good reason. My command that I believe that I've seen in the Word is one day in seven. Uh, If anybody knew which day it was for sure, it would be the Jews. So it's probably Saturday. Okay, that's when they say that it is. Of course, they would have never had to skip, never get anything wrong, never have lost the book of the law or lost count for about 6,000 repetitions of 365 days, keeping the first day first and the seventh day seventh for the entire time. Uh, to know for sure that we were on the same seven-day path. I kind of think maybe the hepatic structures are there to teach an even larger principle (coughs) and that there is a day coming when we will all fully do the will of the Lord and we're practicing for it now. And that's why you had so many kinds of Sabbaths. Does that make sense? Can I tell you a few that the Israel captain didn't keep? They usually kept their weekly Sabbath. They usually did not keep their Sabbath of years. Because they didn't keep their Sabbaths of years, God put them in captivity for 490 years because he was counting. Okay? I find nowhere in the scripture that anybody ever kept the year of Jubilee. That's every seven uh, Sabbath weeks of years. Okay? God is, uh, yeah, it's uh, the 50th year. God, God is a God who is counting. We often lose count. But the pattern stays the same. Does that make sense? Yes. I think that's important. I'm not just talking about Seventh-day Adventists. I'm talking about believers like us who really love the Lord and are trying to figure out how Mosaic principles apply to you. The pattern is what is important. Uh, Read verse 16. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet's blast, Joshua commanded uh, the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Okay. So they're silent six times. And the seventh time around on the seventh day, they break their silence. So we have a pattern of silence and then unified speech. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Listen to this. It's Revelation 8, 1 through 2. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. (laughs) And I saw the seven angels who stand before God. And to them were given seven trumpets. It's interesting to note that in verse 16 is the first time where the whole, in the whole dialogue, where the priest, the people, and the presence are all unified in shouting. The priests are the first to get on the same page with the presence of God. When all three are on the same page, the walls of the world fall down. How about this one? Revelation 10, 7. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God 
will be accomplished. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Who is the first prophet in the Jewish books? The first book out of the law is Joshua. And Moses was a prophet, but the first book of prophecy is Joshua. That's why I taught that in the beginning, so you would get that. Mm -hmm. And in Joshua, do we have seven trumpets? Do we have seven priests holding seven trumpets? Do we have a period of silence followed by a shout? At the seventh trumpet, did walls fall down and the mystery of God be accomplished? Do you think it's a mistake that that perfectly mirrors the book of Revelation? No. Now let me say that correctly. The book of Revelation perfectly mirrors the book of Joshua. Because it came first. And the book of Revelation builds on it. Not the other way around. You want to know why people don't understand the book of Revelation? They don't understand the Older Testament. Now on this topic of the priest and the people, when they become unified, something happens. Can y'all see that? Is that too big of a sword for you to say? Am I taking too big of a leap there? No. No. I get that God told the people to shut up. And then Joshua told them when God said for them to speak. But it was displaying something for us. There are six days where we're working towards something. There are six days we're trying to get something completed so that on the seventh day the mystery of God will be accomplished. When the mystery of God is accomplished... The priest and the people are acting in absolutely one accord as God's hand on earth. Can you see that in this picture? Yes. Now listen to a very familiar scripture that I bet you've never understood like this. Ephesians 4, 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all, say we all, reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The purpose of the local church's leadership is so that you can handle the shofar exactly like them. And when we reach a place where the priest and the people are unified in their message completely, Something special happens. And it's going to take a time period to get there. But we will get there. And the kingdom of the world will fall. And every man will go up straight in. I didn't cover that with you very much, but let me just allude to it here. The direction that you go is always up. Geographically and spiritually, they went up to where God was calling them. Amen. You, you follow me? Yes. yes. But it's not just up. It's also straight. There are two directions that the Spirit is calling this group of people. Upward and towards straightness. Amen. Okay. We can't deviate, not even a tiny little bit, because God's plan is being revealed. What we need to do is not bring God's plan down to the level of the people. We need to bring the people up to God's plan. The Spirit is pulling us upward and straightward. And if we could get in step with Him, we win our battles. 
could we read verse 17 through the end? The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall be spared. Because she did this, um, she hid the spies with consent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into the treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. Hold there. The first time that they went, the first heavenly witness of Jewish messengers on the earth, yielded the salvation of Rahab. The second time they show up, he yielded the salvation of Rahab, Rahab's father, Rahab's mother, her brothers, and all who belong to her. If you think that the first century witness to Israel was amazing, wait till you see what is coming. We have a fine way of counting people out that God has not counted out. Now consider this. Twelve spies went in and failed. Two were faithful. They didn't bring back any military information. They didn't bring back anything useful. They simply said what God said about this land is true. Now those same two spies show up on the day of salvation for Rahab. Moses and Elijah show up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they don't do anything except talk with Jesus about what's about to happen. And God witnesses from the law and the prophets in the writings by speaking from heaven, stringing a pearl for those of you that understand what that is, and gave testimony that the law says this is uh, the Messiah. The prophets say this is the Messiah. The writings say this is the Messiah. And the law and the prophets are standing here with Jesus. When those two prophets show up again, it won't just be for Rahab the remnant. It'll be for all who have ever belonged to her. That's Revelation 11. You just need to open your eyes so that you can see it. I hope you think that's good. If you don't, then it's good. The other thing that I'd like to emphasize at this point, because we're going to have to bring this to a close and we can talk about it for the rest of the evening, but letting others go home. Notice there's a total destruction of the wicked here. Total. But there's also total salvation of the righteous. Now, can you distinguish them by the majority of their deeds? Not really. Because who we're calling righteous, we know lied, and we know is a whore. Why was she righteous? Because she sided with God. 
she got with God's plan. And she lost everything and everyone that she knows because of it. At least she thought she did. And who could have known that granting her a new life would also save her father's life Mm, and her mother's life and her brother's life Mm. and all who belong to her. Mm. He didn't choose you because you were great. He chose you because if he showed you mercy, he kind of thought it might get your daddy, your mama, your brothers, and all who ever loved you because they know how ridiculously sinful you are. (laughs) How sad it is then when Christians lose that perspective. I've lost it many, many times in my life. You get cleaned up and you forget that you still have dirt on you everywhere in places you don't see. Many, many times. This is not an excuse to sin. It's compulsion to leave the sin and help others do the same. That's what Christianity is about. I'd also like to pick up with the curse. So let's do that. Uh, Who will read it for me? Joshua pronounced. Go ahead. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. And the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. You see how Justin just read those things together? You couldn't help it. It's interesting that the total destruction of the wicked is accompanied by the total salvation of the righteous, and then the very next thing that happens is there is a curse on anybody that rebuilds Jericho, followed by a proclamation of the fame of Joshua. The curse and the fame go together. Now, there's a reason for that. What we have here is we have the man who understands God's plan saying this cannot ever be rebuilt. Don't do it. Uh, the actual city is not rebuilt today. It's, it's the house of the moon god, and y'all know that, and we've discussed its relationship to wicked Islam. The city today, Jericho, that exists there, is off-site. It's called Jericho. It's not the same exact place. It's very close. Um, it's the working capital of the PLO, by the way. Uh, they've moved into Jerusalem in many, many ways and into the West Bank <laughs> Now, because of it, but when the PLO started, it was strongest in Jericho. That that can't be a mistake. (coughs) Secondly, the city was rebuilt. It was rebuilt, and God's words through Joshua were literally fulfilled. In 1 Kings 16.34, Hiel was the firstborn son of a king, and he dies. And his youngest son was Sagub, and he dies. At the cost of a firstborn, would the cities of the world be rebuilt? Of course, it was the cost of a firstborn son of God that they'd be torn down. Amen. Ever wonder why the price is what the price is? Because it's what it would cost God to tear down Jericho. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That's good. Wow. The fame mm. of Joshua would grow because of this. Do you know why? Because he did exactly what God told him to do. Why do you love Jesus? 
Because he did exactly what God told him to do. I only do what I hear my father telling me to do. That's why you love it. And he gave his life to tear down this world system. The terrible truth is, if you participate in the world system and you build it up, it will cost you your family lineage. Mm -hmm. It just will. Mm. You can see that all around us. Mm. So we don't do it. And wherever we sin, wherever we break God's heart, our hearts are broken, and we repent, and we get back with God's plan, and we go after it with all of our heart. Mm -hmm. Because somebody's son already died for this. He gave his blood as a ransom for all men. He doesn't want anybody to perish. We repent and we live. That is what Christianity is about. I love you. I hope Joshua 6 was meaningful to you. Let's pray. We're going to go into Joshua 7 and 8 next. And if you would like those hepatic structures, we'll let you have them. You can... You can do that for the rest of your life. I mean, we. the truth is, is if we listed every group of seven, seven women who were barren but had children, seven times the firstborn was replaced, seven is everywhere in the Bible.